Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes Jesus is maddening. I don't know if when you read the Gospels, like when I read the Gospels, sometimes I think, Jesus, why? I, I don't understand. It, you know, last week we, he told a story about uh, a man who owned a vineyard and started hiring people. And you get to the end of it, and he pays the people the same wage who worked one hour that worked 12 hours. And we read that story, and we scratch our heads and say, what? And now today we come to another story that may cause us even more head-scratching. I'm thinking to myself, of all the stories that Luke could include in his gospel that Jesus tells, why this one? It is a story that, that honestly is confusing. It, it makes us feel like everything we've thought about Jesus and the kingdom gets turned upside down. And, and honestly, it's a little hard to figure out. But it's here. And if it's here, if it's in the scriptures, it's important for us to at least make an attempt to figure it out. And so that we're, that's what we're going to do today. I think that it's important to understand the context of this story. You know, in the, in the fourth century, uh, that was when chapter and verse divisions became a, a part of the reading of Scripture. Up to that point, there, there were none. And I think while that is helpful to us in the process of, of finding things, so we can name a chapter and verse and get to it a lot more quickly, but in terms of understanding the flow of the letter and, the, and the, pat, the things that are written in Scripture, sometimes it can be a detriment. Because you come to the, end, the start of chapter 16 of Luke, and you get the sense, like we do when we read books and chapters start, it's a, it's a new idea, something different has happened. But the reality is that's not really the case. This parable in chapter 16 is a continuation of Jesus' response to the encounter with the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the beginning of chapter 15. And Jesus, chapter 15 begins, the tax collectors and other notorious sinners, I love the way they describe these people, often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And so Jesus tells them a story. He tells a story of a lost sheep, he tells the story of a lost coin, he tells the story of a lost son, and he tells the story of, that we read this morning. And all of this is connected together. All of these stories are Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the religious leaders saying, Jesus, these are worthless people, you shouldn't be hanging around them. They're not worthy of you, they're not worthy of the kingdom. You shouldn't be doing this. And so Jesus tells these stories. Now, when you come to this particular story, it's one of those, if you've read it before, you think, oh, man. I noticed that after Pastor John said, this is the word of the Lord, uh, the, thank, the thanks be to God was a little bit hesitant this morning. 
Part of it was like, thanks be to God? That's a strange one. So I, I think it helps to understand some of the, again, the context. One of the things that intrigues me is that when the owner comes to this steward and confronts him, the steward's response is silence. Now you would think he might, he might deny it, or he might blame someone else, or he might even say, look, I've worked for you a long time. Don't we have a relationship? Can't we work this out? Some way of deflecting what the owner is accusing him of. That's what we do, isn't it? I mean, isn't that our natural response? But he doesn't. He's silent. And I think his silence is an indication of his admission of guilt. What can he say? He's right. The, the accusation is true. There's absolutely nothing he can do about it. He might as well just take it. It is interesting to me that both the prodigal son and the, this steward are not afraid to say after they've been confronted with their situation, I have a need. The prodigal son, sitting among the pigs, says, this is not what I was thinking this was going to end up like. I've got no place to go. I've got no food to eat. I don't even, they won't even let me eat the food the pigs eat. I can go home to my father and be a servant and be better off than I am now. And, and this steward says, okay, I'm in trouble here. I'm too um, weak to dig. I don't really like manual labor. I, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have, I'm too proud to beg. So I've got to think of another solution. Both of them admit their need. Now, neither of them, what they do out of it is necessarily altruistic, but they do admit their need for survival. And what fascinates me is that when you read through the Gospels particularly, but this is true without all of Scripture, we seem to find that people who are willing to admit, admit their need for whatever reason, God seems to say to them, I can work with that. And people who are unwilling to admit their need handcuff God. Isn't this what Jesus keeps saying to the religious leaders? I came for people who admit that they're sick and need a doctor, not people who believe they're perfectly well and need nothing. It's one of the ways in which we see the separation between the people who encounter Jesus positively and negatively. And at the heart of being a follower of Jesus is admitting our need. Not just once, but continually. We live our lives admitting we need God. We live our lives saying, God, I need you. The psalmist cries this so many times. God, I need you. And that is, that's so integral to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. He says, I have a need I've got to do something about it. it. It is an interesting thing to ponder what 
the, um, what, what G, how Jesus interjecting into the story describes what the guy does. He, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to do something about this. And, and he, he starts, he calls in these people and says, all right, start lowering your bills. Start changing what you do. Change what you owe. You know, many of you might remember that Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love, Money Can't Buy Me Love. I thought about titling my sermon this week, Maybe It Can. Right? I mean, he says to them, look, the reason he does this, the reason he, he makes these changes, he says is, so do things that will make you friends. Use your worldly, worldly resources to make friends. Use what you have to make people feel better about you. And there's something in the back of our minds that says, is that right? Should we really do that? Should we use what we have to do that kind of thing? Well, stop for a minute and pull, sometimes you pull back from the story a second and, and think, well, what's the opposite of doing that? The opposite of using our worldly resources to make friends is to use our worldly resources to make enemies. And the truth of the matter is sometimes we can be so worried about manipulating people or appearing to manipulate people with what we have that we don't do anything that would make people think we care about them at all. I don't think Jesus is saying use what you have to manipulate and use people to get what you want. But I do think Jesus is saying if you have worldly resources use them to make friends rather than enemies. And he says, this is not just a, this, is, this has eternal consequences to it. For when you get, when you come into, uh, come to the place of life where the eternity is in front of you, you'll be welcomed home. Now it's intriguing to me, Jesus is not saying you can buy your way into heaven. But of course, I've also realized that People who think they can buy their way into heaven usually don't spend a whole lot trying to do that. Because if people think they can buy their way into heaven, then money is the most important thing in life. And people to whom money is the most important thing in life are typically not real willing to part with it. It's always about minimal. Now, it is interesting that right after this, Jesus tells another parable. And this one is about a beggar named Lazarus and a rich man. And this rich man has great wealth, and Lazarus is a beggar who the only food he can get is to eat the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. And here this rich man has everything. And he doesn't care enough about this beggar. Every day he sits and eats. I can't imagine the scene. He's eating, and here is this beggar sitting under the table waiting for food to fall. And Jesus says when they both die and they come in to eternity, there is nobody there to welcome the rich man. 
There's nobody there who will say a good word about the rich man. There's nobody there who will say, yeah, that guy made friends with his worldly possessions. And I think that's a lot of what Jesus is describing here. Not that, that you were going to manipulate and, and buy our way into eternal life. But what are we doing with the resources we have? Are we creating an atmosphere of, of goodwill for people? Are we, are we gener so generous to people that they think well of us? When we get to eternal life, is anybody going to say, you know what? Those people were kind and generous and merciful, and they used what they had to help other people in every way they possibly could. It's about being generous or stingy. Jesus is not commending his ethics, but Jesus is, does say he commends his shrewdness. And you know, that word shrewd, I would suspect initially we respond to as negative. If people are shrewd, we tend to think that's a bad thing. Well, the truth of the matter is it can be bad or good, positive or negative. The serpent is in Genesis Three is called shrewd and he tempts Adam and Eve to sin but Joseph in Gen later in Genesis is called shrewd and he saves the, the Egyptians and all kinds of other people around the world because he's wise and prudent about what he does with the grain they take in and that word that Jesus uses here does mean at his heart to be wise to be prudent to be judicial as I was looking it up, I was surprised at the ways in which Jesus uses that word. He uses it in Matthew 7 when he's describing the kinds of houses that people build. And some people build their house on sand, and when the storms come, it collapses. And those people he calls foolish. But there's another group of people that build their house on rock, and when the storms come, the house stands. And those people he calls shrewd. Same way with the bridesmaids in Matthew 25. Those who don't prepare, who don't bring enough oil, who don't think ahead, they're foolish. But those who do bring enough oil and have enough left to wait out the bridegroom, they're called shrewd. Now, we like the term wise better because in our culture it just sounds better, but it's the same word. And it means to be prudent, to be wise, to think through things, to process things, to prepare when I think of an Old Testament equivalent to this manager, I think of Jacob. Jacob is called the deceiver. He spends most of his early years of his life deceiving people, manipulating people, working the angles with people. His brother, his father, his uncle, over and over again, this is his M.O. He is a person we would call shrewd in the negative sense and in the positive sense. But there is something about Jacob, particularly in comparison to his brother Esau, that paints Jacob in a better light. Esau is, doesn't care about planning ahead. Esau doesn't like to think about things. Esau doesn't like to, to anything but the, but the moment. And he makes all kinds of bad decisions in the moment. And Jacob is certainly not the ideal person to model our lives after. 
But what's so interesting is that even though Jacob may be someone we don't really clearly understand, God uses him. And God works with him. And God builds his kingdom through him in a way that you and I probably wouldn't. There is something about being wise and prudent about what we have. Thinking about how we're living our lives, thinking about what we're doing with our worldly resources, thinking about our relationships, and asking ourselves, are these things being productive? Are these things helping other people? Are they working for the good or something different? Because you see, one of the things that we see in this, this man, the steward, is that he is in a position to be in, in the middle between the owner and the people. He is, he is given the, the role, the position of being an ambassador of the owner. He's the one that the people interact with. He's the one that the, that the people get a glimpse, of, get an understanding of who the owner is through him. No wonder he says you are going to, that, that you make friends with other people. That's what ambassadors do. You create goodwill for the people you're representing. And you and I are called to that role. As followers of Jesus, people know we're followers of Jesus. What do they think about God based on how we live? You see, here's the thing about this story, is that it's not just about him making friends for himself, it's about him making friends for the owner too. The owner's problem here, and God's problem in the world, is not resources. God has infinite resources. The problem with God in the world is his reputation. What do people think about God? Kenneth Bailey, in his book, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, talks about this story, and he paints a scene that I hadn't really thought about until I began to, to, to see what he, was, what he was writing. He says that no one knows that the steward has been fired except the owner and the steward. Everyone else thinks that he's still representing the owner. And so when he goes to the, everybody that owes money to the owner and says to them, how much do you owe? Make it less. And he goes down the road and meets with every one of them. The whole, the whole village is having a celebration. They're excited because, because their, their debt has been lowered. And who is the recipient of their celebration? Who is the honored hero? It's the owner. Because if the, if the steward has come and done this, then the owner must have told him to do this. Because the steward wouldn't do that on his own. That would be wrong. And they would say, well, I don't know. I better not, we better not do that. But they think the owner has instigated this. And so now their bad feelings about being in debt to the owner have completely turned upside down. And now they're having a party and a celebration. Look at what this generous owner has done for all of us. Now, walking into that celebration, the owner has two choices. He can say to them, look, I fired that guy days ago. He had no right to change your bills, and I'm not going to honor that. You all owe me the full amount, 
everything that you did before. And if he does that, now they're not going to just feel badly about him. They're going to hate him. And their children are going to hate him. And their children are going to hate him. And their children are going to hate his ancestors. And it is going to create this spirit of deep, deep animosity because something that was promised to them that they were celebrating has been jerked away from them. And the other option is for him to take the loss and be the hero. But here's the thing. It's not as if the steward is presenting an image of the owner that isn't true. Because any owner who would allow his steward to waste so much of, what, of the owner's possessions is a generous owner. I mean, you think about if Scrooge were the owner. Believe me, Bob Cratchit couldn't waste 10 cents of his money. He would know every penny that Bob Cratchit was spending. I mean, isn't that one of the points that Dickens is making in the story? He's got his hand on everything. Nothing is given to anyone without him knowing about it. Nothing is spent without him knowing about it because he is a greedy owner. But an owner that will give his steward that kind of freedom that he actually could waste things is an owner who is generous. But when you're in debt to an owner, it's hard to see them as generous. What changes your mind? A blatant act of generosity that you don't deserve. And even though the steward may not have meant to do that, he does it. And Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you to act like the steward. But I am telling you to paint an image of God like the steward does. Be an ambassador for God. Be my witnesses that help people to understand the character and the nature of who God is, that he is generous. I'm sure that there were other business friends who were saying to the owner, you're out of your mind, don't do this. They're going to just manipulate you. They're going to keep taking advantage of you. And he says, I know. But that's okay. Because I want to be generous with them. I care about them. In a way, isn't that the point of the parables in chapter 15? The lost sheep. The shepherd goes and leaves his 99 to go find that sheep. And the, and the lost coin, the woman searches everywhere to find the coin. Nothing else matters but finding that coin. And the father can't wait for his lost son to come home and to embrace him. Because this is who God is. This is the nature of our God. And this kind of generosity is, is extravagant. And even reckless. I mean, I have a picture in my mind of the, the story of the, of the shepherd 
And the shepherd leaves the 99, goes out, finds the one sheep, comes back, says to everyone, Let's, I'm throwing a big party because the sheep that was lost has been found. Come and join me. And I can hear all the people in the town saying, okay, we'll do that. Would you like for us to go find the 99 that have now wandered away while you were gone before we have the party? And we say, well, that was reckless. Yes. But that sheep mattered. And the lost coin, you get the feeling when she finds it and she throws a big party, I get the feeling that she spends more on the party than the worth of the coin. It feels reckless. And the father, when he sees his son, his prodigal son coming back, and he runs to greet him, he could not do anything more embarrassing and humiliating than to do that. Fathers in that culture do not run. They do not run for their children, and particularly for their prodigal children. But this father does. Because he doesn't care what other people think. All he cares about is my son has come home. The one I've been seeking and waiting for has come home. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to you and me, this is God. He is extravagantly, recklessly generous with his love and his grace and his welcoming and his mercy. And it doesn't mean that he ignores truth. It doesn't mean that he ignores the demands of the gospel. Right after this, Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. You got to choose. How many times he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Grace is always demanding. Grace always calls us to something more. We think grace is, well, we just do what we want. That's not the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel says, I have set you free to know the fullness of surrendered life to me. But it's still grace, and it's still generosity beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. This is our God. This is God saying to the Israelites through the prophet Hosea, you have abandoned me for the last time. You have wasted everything I've given you. Just get out of my sight. And then God taking a deep breath and saying, but how can I give you up? I love you. I'll never give you up. My grace is always for you. Not because you deserve it, but because you don't. So here's the question that's been rattling around in my mind this week. Surely, there was a less confusing story Jesus could tell to make his point than this one. Surely, there was another story he could come up with that didn't leave us saying, yeah, but this, and yeah, but that, or I don't get that. And I've been, I've been thinking through that. And I don't know that I, I know the answer to it, but there is something that's come to my mind. It makes me wonder that perhaps the reason Jesus tells this story, a story that is difficult for us to grasp, 
and to embrace is because he wants to remind us that our generous, recklessly loving God cannot be put into the boxes we want to wrap him in. We love to put God in our boxes. We love to think, okay, God, I've figured you out. Okay, God, I've learned everything I need to know, and now I'll just wrap you up in a beautiful box, put a nice bow on it, and set it aside, and now I can just live the way I want to in my own thinking about who you are. And Jesus keeps telling us that's not the way it works. Boxes are always about control. And Jesus comes to do many things, and one of those is to shatter all of the ways in which we want to control God. Because every one of our boxes makes God smaller, more narrow. It makes God thinner. It makes God less of what he is. Because it's us making the box, not him. And the most important thing about letting Jesus shatter our boxes is that it brings us back to God's call on our lives to trust him. The ultimate point of the gospel is not know everything about me. As important as that is, and as much as we can know about God and as awesome as it is to know the things we can about God, the ultimate end of the gospel is not know everything about God. The ultimate end of the gospel is trust God. Give your life to God. And that's our calling. That's why we come to this table today. People throughout, history of the, throughout the history of the church, people have argued all kinds of ideas about what's going on when we come to the table of our Lord. But at the heart of it is us understanding in, the, in whatever way we can, it's an expression of God's great, extravagant, reckless love to us and our desire to receive it and to trust Him. And it's only when we come to that place that we can be the kinds of ambassadors for God that people desperately need to get a new glimpse of who God is and what he wants to be in their lives as he wants to be in our lives. Holy Father, we thank you for your wondrous mercy and grace to us. Forgive us when we make you less than you are. Forgive us when we misrepresent you. Open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to the greatness to the extravagant nature 
of your generosity and your love. Father, we pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to receive today. May it be food for our souls through the loving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.